Today's episode of the Two Retired Homeschoolers. Today we will be reviewing Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. I'm Holly Matthews and I'm joined by my co-host, Rebecca. Hi. And today we have a very special guest, my grandmother. Um, and just to give you a background before I formally introduce her, she grew up on a farm and became a Christian at age 11. She has an associate's in English and music. Um, she took classes at three different universities, including the Kansas City Bible College, Kansas University College, and McPherson College. She worked in the personnel and commercial real estate department in baking for 15 years. And she did substitute teaching at Hickman's Mills, Mills School District, District for a while as well. She ran for Missouri State Representative in 2012, and she worked as a poll su supervisor for the Republican Party for many years. She also briefly taught English as a second language for the federal government, which I think is cool. She enjoys reading, grandchildren, writing, and learning about quantum physics and the, sp and the spiritual realm in her free time. And she cares for five cats who all justifiably adore her. So... Welcome, Virginia Matthews, to the Two Retired Homeschoolers. Oh, it's such a joy to be here. Just a real joy to be here. <laughs> now, do you want me to launch into this or what? Um, yes, yeah, so let's go over our first impressions, so our thoughts when we first read the book, and then we can go into our deeper analysis. Okay. Um, so would you like to start? Yeah. I said that I was glad to hear that you all do editing because I tend to be too wordy and inclusive. And if you're hoping to squeeze the comments about this book into one hour, <laughs> I personally think that that would be a bit of a challenge because I view it as a very complex book, not easily, quickly critiqued. So I'll state up front some of the things about myself since that will provide some context to my perspective. I had two different perspectives of this book. I normally don't read fiction, but I prefer books written by authors who are excellent thought and wordsmiths from whom I can learn, authors who are spiritually mature, writing about subjects such as theology, intelligent design, history, near-death experiences, deep spiritual, uh, scriptural exposés, and biographies about great people. But since C.S. Lewis is a favorite author, when I was 39, married and had two children, I stumbled upon this book and assumed by its title that it would be an allegorical writing containing spiritual nuggets. So I read it with that expectation and was satisfied enough that I recommended it to my husband, who loved to read and was an accomplished musical composer, and he did not care for it at all. He oh, relished, really? yeah, <laughs> he relished Agatha Christie type books. Though a Christian, this book was so different that he could not find any value in it. And other folks that I've asked about the book had similar reactions, usually saying that they tried it, but they gave up on it. And now at the age of 83 and reading it a second time and knowing that I'd be on a podcast, I read it from a more comprehensive perspective and had a very different reaction to it. But maybe I should wait to be more specific about those two different perspectives until you two have shared your initial comments. Okay, very good. I guess I'll go next. Um, I read this book when I was 15, so four years ago, and 
I remember knowing it was allegory because it was C.S. Lewis, um, but I just had no idea what was going on. And it really frustrated me, too, because for some reason, I really cared about this book. Like, once I had read it, I was like, I feel like this is just so deep and powerful, and I'm, I'm almost able to understand it, but not quite. So I knew, like, for instance, Psyche's... Um, uh, her being sacrificed may have represented the crucifixion and like the god of the mountain was god but other than those two things nothing else was particularly obvious and i had a lot of different ideas but most of them contradicted themselves so i was very frustrated and i tried to talk to other people who had read it but everyone had read it either 10 years ago or longer and couldn't remember a thing so um and and actually i, I printed out some of my some of the quotes from the book that i found the most intriguing that I still didn't understand and I put them on my wall because I was that dedicated to trying to figure this this book out but I never made any headway so so it was very interesting rereading this a second time I have a lot of new insights and I'm really excited to talk about this with you guys cool yeah um I first read it when I was 16 and yeah like it was definitely I'd read. I loved C.S. Lewis. I'd read The Chronicles of Narnia countless times. I'd read the Space Trilogy. I'd read a bunch of his nonfiction, but like I had never heard of this book. And and so when I like found out there was another fiction book that C.S. Lewis wrote, I was like, "What? I have to read this." And so I did. Um, and I never talked about it to anybody. I never told anyone else. Like I did. I did tell people they should read it, maybe, but I. No one ever like came back to me and was like, I did read it. And this was my experience. So I, I didn't really know how anyone else felt about the book until many years later when I've heard people talk about it. And usually it's like, it's really, really good or it's really, really confusing and I don't get it. That's people's main reactions, mm-hmm. I feel like. My reaction was that it was really, really good. Um, I it's actually it's still I still don't know how to really talk about it, but I, I didn't feel like I'd ever read a character that I related to as much as the main character of the book or like a representation of questions that I do have about God and religion and faith and stuff um what I what I remember most strongly is that because because the book is how do you say her name or 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 uh oral is how grandma has proposed to pronounce it (laughs) Oriole? Okay. Well, her. Um, I could just call her Maya like Psyche does, I suppose. But anyway, she's writing the book as like a complaint against the gods. And she's saying like, this is my complaint that I have against them and they're why they're not just and why even if they're real, they're not worth believing in. Um, And so I just remember like I was completely tracking with her like by the end of part one I was like yeah you just convinced me (laughs) like if you can unconvince me that will be a feat that you can't there's no way you can unconvince me I'm with and I knew like C.S. Lewis wrote this book so he's gonna try and unconvince me but he's not gonna succeed (laughs) and then I read the second half and he did succeed and so being convinced and then unconvinced um by a book I don't I don't know like I don't know I, it's a, it's a uniquely powerful book in my opinion that's that's my experience of it 
um, yeah. Okay. I don't know how else to say it. I, I will put in, before we move on to our deeper thoughts, I was struck by how well C.S. Lewis was able to depict a female and, like, a female's thought life, and also specifically her thoughts about men. <laughs> like, I was like, wow, this is quite impressive for a male author. But then, again, he was married by that time, and that probably helped him out. <laughs> yeah, I think it did. You know, I, I think he got... He was never bad at writing women, but I think over his lifetime, his female characters just get better and better as he slowly learned more and more about us, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you have anything else to add to that? Not to that. Uh, I do have a more comprehensive perspective. This last time when I read the book at 83, I approached it through a different comprehensive context. And so if you want me to go into that. Yeah, let's that, go into uh, that. <laughs> okay. I was noticing that the copyright of the book was 1956, and one realizes that it was written four years before Lewis's wife, Joy, died, and he had dedicated the book to her. And it was written after their second marriage, the marriage of love, not the marriage that took place merely so that Joy could legally stay into England. Joy herself was a writer, and she and Lewis appreciated each other's literary talents. I assumed because of Lewis's love for Joy that he wrote the book hoping to bring a measure of pleasure, comfort, entertainment, etc. to his beloved dying wife. In the very back of the book, I think it's essential that the reader go to that and realize that Lewis gives an explanation about his version of a story that was originally written 125 AD. That's 125 years after Christ died that this writing originally took place. And it was found in, quote, one of the few surviving Latin novels by the title of Metamorphoses. Metamorphoses is the plural form of metamorphoses, meaning, of course, transformation, change, rebirth, and alter alteration. As you read the essence of this 125 AD story of Cupid, Psyche, Venus, and Jupiter, you realize the basic story contains a variety of myth, eros love, drama, jealousy, murder, suspense, spiritual truths, and other mortal emotions. It's as though modern literary scholars regard metamorphoses as deserving to be imitated or used as a model literary piece to challenge contemporary writers to come up with their own version of this uniquely comprehensive literary work. Interestingly, two modern-day poets have closely followed the ancient story, publishing it in poem form, but Lewis did not feel either poem was well written. He states the original author of Metamorphoses was a man of great genius. However, he, Lewis, considered that original author only a source for his, Lewis's story, not as a model. However, the parallels between the basic story of Metamorphoses and Lewis's Till We Have Faces are many and very obvious with the added dimension <clears throat> that Lewis's version incorporates personalities that represent the Christian God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Satan, as well as other characters of valor, and conversely, those representing baseness, selfishness, narcissism, evil, etc. My overall reactions to the book 
was number one, I needed to remind myself of the difference between metaphor and allegory. A metaphor is where a word or a phrase literally denoting one kind of object or idea is used in place of another to suggest a likeness or analogy between them, such as saying a ship plows the sea. Allegory is using symbolic fictional figures and actions to portray truths and generalizations about spiritual values and or other familiar human realities. In this sense, till we have faces, is best described as a spiritual allegory. I think my husband didn't like the book because he was probably approaching it like an Agatha Christie fiction. That is, he was reading it only as a story and not looking for any allegorical concepts. I, on the other hand, was constantly looking for some nuggets of spiritual truth. Consequently, during about the first 65 pages, while Lewis is painting pictures in our minds of some of the book's main characters, especially of the king who represented Satan or an evil spirit, I really had to discipline myself to stay with it and not quit because I was so negatively affected by all the evil and darkness of Trong, the king of Gloom. Mm. Note how close his kingdom's name is to Gloom, G-L-O-O-M. And since I'm not used to reading fiction, the dark mood set forth in the first pages was a real downer for me, and only my former positive reaction to the book kept me engaged until I got further into the story, maybe about page 65 and beyond, where there were more positive concepts to be found. Lewis does a masterful job of helping the reader to get into the personalities of the main characters. I eventually admired some characters while feeling disdain and disgust for others, something that I am sure Lewis intended. I think the book can be read at a minimum from two perspectives. Frankly, if the writer or if the reader is not a Christian or has no spiritual understanding, I have no idea why they would stay engaged until the book's end. From my perspective, if the reader is oblivious, to the prototypes of the main characters and unaware of the allegorical elements throughout the book, how could it make any sense to them? That being said, I guess it could be read merely as a often weird writings of an abused firstborn daughter of a deleterious evil king father who rules a kingdom populated by ignorant, superstitious, idol-worshiping peasants. Reading from this perspective, the king's oldest daughter, Oral, writes her life story in a Greek scroll which tells of her relationship to her two sisters, a character by the name of Fox, a palace guard called Bardia, and his wife and an evil female slave in the king's court, Bata. These characters provide many contrasting opportunities for good, evil, courage, cowardice, love, selfishness, truth, ignorance, and other human experiences and emotions to be vicariously felt by the reader. When read solely at this surface level perspective, Oral becomes queen except for her as, I'm sorry, Oral becomes queen and upon the king's death, she rules the kingdom with love and wisdom, so life is better for everyone except her because the one man that she loves is true to his wife. 
at the story's end, the reader has joined the aged queen in her anger at the gods for the way that they have made her suffer in life and left her with so many unanswered questions. So my perspective of the book as a spiritual allegory made it more challenging to discover the spiritual nuggets, but they were there, very obvious. I'll mention just a few because of our time constraints. The youngest daughter of the king is named Psyche. Psyche in Greek means breath, life, soul. In the story, Psyche is so physically beautiful that people in her father's kingdom thought her a goddess. In my perspective, Psyche is a prototype of Christ. The oldest daughter, Oral, loves Psyche with a sacrificial type love, so much so that Oral says at one point that Psyche seems to almost be an extension of her, Oral's, own personhood. The superstitious, idol-worshipping, spiritual priests of the king's kingdom think that their lives have been going poorly, not because the king is derelict, but because the mountain god wants a human sacrifice. So they demand that Psyche appease the god by chaining her to a tree on the top of the mountain to be at the mercy of the beasts and the elements. Throughout the book, Psyche is so loving, compassionate, caring, and tuned into the spiritual unseen world that the reader rather quickly identifies her as a Christ figure. She is sacrificed on a tree like Christ. Instead of being ravished by wild animals, her thirst was quenched by the west wind, which she perceived as a god. West wind, equal to our Christian god, takes her in his arms and pulls her out of the tree chains and they fly in the sky to a safe place. West wind is a merry, rough god. She only sees flashes of him, and then he disappears. Psyche considers him her god, her lover, her husband. Psyche hears female spirit voices telling her to come inhabit her new house, where they give her fruit and wine, bathe her, and dress her in beautiful clothes. This, to me, is her entering into Christianity's heaven. Oral goes to visit the mountaintop, where Psyche was chained to the tree and discovers that Psyche is not there and there is no trace of tattered clothes or other signs of a body having ever been there. Oral then encounters Psyche, but does not realize that Psyche is now a spiritual being. They are happy to be reunited, but quickly after hearing Psyche talk about West Wind and Psyche's new home and that Psyche considers herself as West Wind's wife and her only desire is to love him and to be loyal to him, Oral has no understanding of spiritual realities and she thinks Psyche is crazy. She argues with Psyche telling her that there is no truth to what Psyche has experienced. Oral becomes so angry that Psyche won't listen to her that Oral considers killing Psyche. But for a fleeting second, Oral thinks that she sees the outline of Psyche's spiritual house in the fog, but then she dismisses it as just being her imagination. During this section of the book, Lewis masterfully brings to the reader's awareness how human love and hate can be very complex and intertwined. There's a character in the book called Fox who is from a different country and the evil king keeps Fox in his court 
because Fox's advice is so valuable, but Fox does not believe in the mountain god and all the traditions of the villagers to appease the gods. To me, Fox is the Holy Spirit. Time doesn't permit me to mention many of the other really beautiful analogies about God's love and truths shown through the main characters of the book and their thoughts, conversations, and experiences. Lewis shows the reader his extraordinary psychological insight into the complexity, paradoxical, ironic thoughts, emotions, loyalties, jealousies, doubts, questions, sufferings, etc., that we humans experience as we journey through mortal life. And in summary, I say that till we have faces embodies in those four words that there's a passage of time implied that will contain many experiences to take place before our souls or spirits reach our true home in God's kingdom where we then can come to a true realization of ourselves, others, and God's God as we behold each other with our perfected spiritual faces. Mm. Very well done, Grandma. Thank if you. you're wondering why she spoke so well, it's because she literally wrote all that out in preparation for this podcast, which, Rebecca, I wonder what this podcast would be like if we put as much work as my grandma did into our episodes. It would definitely be better. I'm 83 years old, and I just didn't dare leave anything to my memory. I had to write it. <laughs> well, it was very well said. Very well said. Thank you. Now I want to hear what you guys have to say. Okay, uh, Rebecca, do you want to go ahead or? So when I first read it, I did not think of it as, I didn't know it was allegory. I didn't even know it was based on the myth of Cupid and Psyche. So I kind of, I think allegory is all tangled up with like the story. Like, you know what I mean? Like Psyche, yes, in some ways is a Christ figure, but in some ways she's like more of a figure of a Christian mm -hmm. and the West Wind is more like um, in the relationship of Christ to the church and like so so I don't know it's it's and, and in some ways um, the main character herself is a Christ figure because she takes on Psyche's sufferings and like and therefore Psyche doesn't have to like you know there's like yeah. there's multiple there's ways, multiple layers so it just, yeah so it just gets all confusing for me but I would say, like, the central allegory, allegorical thread of, like, um, Oral's belief in the gods and what she, like, thinking that she's coming to them in complete sincerity and just wanting to know and then finally being able to bring her complaint before them and realizing that she's such a mess like she's just a jumble of everything how, like how can they meet us face to face till we have faces and mm -hmm. like like realizing the true perfection of god and her own imperfection beside it definitely that allegorical thread i i at least follow that bit um but yeah mm -hmm. no overall i it's really hard for me to understand allegory i guess it's either hard for me to understand or I understand it and I'm bored by it. So so I guess it's good that it's hard for me to understand. 
Well, and I wonder how the story would have been different if Lewis were to write it from scratch and not follow, mm -hmm. you know, a tale once told many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. Right, which I thought that was really interesting because he... Well, I mean, but I think that's where the whole idea came from, you know? Like, he read that myth and he was like, it's got to be, like, different than this. Like, he's missing a key element. Like, he was interested in the, like, other sisters' motivations and... Yeah, that whole Greek thing was very mystifying to me. Uh, I guess just because maybe that's what the original original thing that the thing was based on. Yeah, it that went over my head. It really did. Yeah, yeah the part where C.S. Lewis was still trying to tr tie in the part where she has to go to the underworld and get the cup of, of death that had beauty or whatever and harvest the sheep's wool and have the ants help her separate seeds like... That just felt very thrown in there, like he was trying to rectify it back to the old story. It's interesting. I kind of thought of that as part of um, Oral's character arc of learning to truly love Psyche. Like, she thought she loved Psyche from the beginning, but there was so much human imperfection mixed up in with that. And all of that was part of her progression toward having an actually selfless love of Psyche. Hmm. So so when you were saying earlier that you thought the first half of the book, you were convinced by Oral's case that everything she was saying against the gods was true, and then you were wondering how C.S. Lewis could unconvince you, and he managed to do so. You were talking specifically about Oral's love for Psyche and how Oral thought that she loved Psyche perfectly and that she was getting the brunt end of the stick and all the injustice was towards her and Psyche. And then it turns out that she didn't love her as perfectly as she thought, and that was the second part. It's not so much about her love for Psyche as just. Wait, can I read? Can I read a paragraph? I don't. I don't know if this will help me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. So this is right after she sees the house in the mist. So she's like been with Psyche, and like she's overjoyed to find her alive. But as far as she can tell, she's living in rags. She's eating berries and drinking stream water. But Psyche says she's living in a palace. You know, drinking fine wine and eating fine food, and or Oral's like what what I, I i don't see this palace what are you talking about what's going on but that night after she's parted from psyche um she gets up to go get a drink of water and she sees she sees the house um but but then it like fades away like it's back it's just missed she's like i i saw it so clearly it was not like anything i'd ever seen i don't know how i would have imagined it but now it's gone again too so here's the paragraph and now you who read give judgment that moment when I either saw or thought I saw the house, does it tell against the gods or against me? Would they, if they answered, make it a part of their defense? Say it was a sign, a hint, beckoning me to answer the riddle one way rather than the other. I'll not grant them that. What is the use of a sign which is itself only another riddle? It might, I'll allow so much, it might have been a true seeing. The cloud over my mortal eyes may have been lifted for a moment. It might not. What would be easier than for one distraught, and not maybe so fully waking as she seemed, gazing at a mist in a half-light, to fancy what had filled her thoughts for so many hours? What easier even than for the gods themselves to send the whole fairly for a mockery? Either way, there's divine mockery in it. They set the riddle and then allow a seeming that can't be tested and can only quicken and thicken the tormenting whirlpool of your guesswork. If they had an honest intention to guide us, why is their guidance not plain? Psyche could speak plain when she was three. Do you tell me the gods have not yet come so far? Um, 
that complaint of I just feel like that's sort of oral central complaint is if the gods wanted to do this, they could. They have the ability. So why don't they? And that applies to both our knowledge of them and, um, you know, our suffering, relieving our suffering. I, I've always found the most emotionally compelling argument against the existence of God not so much to be like, oh, God can't possibly exist, but more like a God who allows the kind of suffering and interacts with us in the way that he does isn't worth believing in. And not because I actually believe that, but because like, like life is like this book, right? Like there is, there's just horrible things that happen and nothing is plain. And you're like, well, God could help me in this way. And it would be so helpful if he would just be clear. And that's just not how it is. And so I just feel like Oral's complaint, she 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 puts that in words really exactly how I felt it, you know? And especially how I felt it as a teenager, where, like figuring stuff out about what I believed and everything. And so the answer that Lewis gives to her complaint in the second half of the book is, it is kind of like The Man Who Was Thursday. It's not a completely like, this is the logical reason why it is this way, and that should satisfy you. I don't know. <laughs> it's emotionally compelling rather than necessarily completely logically compelling. Just as the argument itself is emotionally compelling, like the argument against the gods is emotionally compelling rather than just completely logically compelling. It, 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 answers the, it answers the complaint the same way that the complaint was asked, I guess is what I'm saying. So, like, what was your question? I, I lost myself trying oh, to right. answer it. I was just wondering, like, what you meant exactly when you were saying that you were convinced by her case in the first half of the book and then you were unconvinced and, and why that was. Yeah, I was convinced by her case that, yeah, the gods probably do exist. They seem to exist, and they seem to not be very nice. So, so yeah, they're more powerful than me, but I'm more right than them. Mm-hmm. I, I know people who believe that about God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, and I was convinced, not like actually convinced in my actual life, but I was convinced in the book by or- oral side of the case. And so, therefore... The second half of the book, I think, unconvinced me. It's really hard to say why because it's it's more a collection of just what happened, but it just showed how Oral had been mistaken, even in thinking she was right, even in thinking that she loved Psyche. She didn't love her perfectly. She came to love her perfectly through a grace, through grace. You know, she was able mm-hmm. to... Um, take on that suffering for Psyche, not like she wanted to, she had to be willing to do it, but it wasn't like she was able to take that from Psyche unless she was allowed to by divine grace. Yeah, I found that part super vague and didn't really understand it. (laughs) The part where she took on Psyche's suffering. That was pretty central to my understanding of the book. So, (laughs) yeah, that's funny. I, I guess like, Mm, I would say in the first half of the book, Psyche, I mean, Oral convinces me that the gods may be real, but they are unjust, and she is right. Mm-hmm. And in the second half, 
I am convinced that she's not as right as she thought she was. She's tangled up and... But the thing is, even then it's confusing because the gods in this book aren't exactly God. Like the Christian mm-hmm. God. But he, the, the Christian God is in the second half of the book, I think. But um, the, the other West God... The Wind it's, it's, or the God of the Mountain. Yeah, because you can't, you can't just make that a one-for-one, one, this is God, because... No, that doesn't work. <laughs> what did you guys think of um, when the book said that she was Ungit, who was the bad god, the god that was like formless and cruel and cold and stuff? Did you understand I that? I didn't really get it. I felt that that was one of the complexities that when you read an allegorical book like this, we each bring our own perspective, our ages, our spiritual understanding to it, and when we read the book when we're younger, we're going to have one perspective. When you read the book when you're older, you're going to have another, and I wouldn't have been able to have made sense out of it, except as I was using the Bible and the history of mankind and the fact that in this fallen world there are many things that we in our culture don't acknowledge that there is evil forces. There are evil forces in the spiritual realm that if you ignore them then life doesn't make sense. But if you do realize that the spiritual realm contains realities that our four-dimensional world down here, uh, we find it difficult to understand. But once the Holy Spirit uh, gives us insight into spiritual realities, then uh, things become more clear to us. So some things only make sense from the perspective of eternity as you look back on mankind's existence in this world. And of course, you have a hundred people and you ask a hundred people, what is the meaning of life? And if those hundred people don't happen to have a Christian worldview, you're going to get a hundred different perspectives of what life is all about. So some of the complexities that I think are brought forth in this book is natural man trying to uh, make sense of the fact that he is a, an emotional creature and he feels things uh, differently. Um, and you see the complexity of the psychological psyche of human beings in different circumstances. And you realize that you might at the same time simultaneously have two different viewpoints about something and both of them be valid. And so you have to have a certain amount of uh, maturity to be able to separate that out. And, and frankly, as you read through some of the conflicting uh, pers- perspectives about how evil the gods are and how they hide things from us and they don't make things clear to us, da-da-da-da-da-da. The average person, of course, is they're reading this book. If they don't know Jesus and don't know God and don't have the Holy Spirit, they're going to say, yeah, that's right. I identify with that. That's, that's exactly how I feel. But um, you have to look at it, in my opinion, um, 
knowing that C.S. Lewis was, you know, what? He was in his 60s before he, no, he wasn't quite that old, but he was probably in his 40s or 50s before he came into the belief that Christianity was true. And so uh, there's just a lot of subjective things that are suggested in the book. And according to the reader's own perspective and the way they have sorted through and decided what the truth is about some of these things, you're going to end up saying, well, yeah, that, that sounds right. I kind of believe that. But then the next page, you're going to think, well, yeah, that kind of sounds right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. The reason why this book is so hard to understand to me is because, like we were saying earlier, it's like it's allegory for the gospel and also specifically to suffering, but Christian suffering as well. And um, the characters all represent different aspects of the gospel at the same time in different ways. And it's like allegory that's three-dimensional and kind of contradictory all going on at the same time. Yeah. So it's like, how on earth do you put that into words? (laughs) Yeah. My approach to that, I feel like, is kind of the opposite of yours, Mrs. Matthews. Like, because you're, because you, you like, you figured out like oh this represents this in this aspect and this in this aspect and then it makes sense to you and that's helpful and for me I get so confused doing that I'm just like I don't know who anyone represents I'm just gonna read it as a story (laughs) like and not even try to get the allegory out of it even though I you, you know I still get some allegory but like I definitely miss a lot because my I just get muddled trying to think it all through Well, and if you're like me, sometimes when you're reflecting upon the book later after you've read it, a thought will come to you, you know, if you think about it, you think, oh, yeah, I think that that's what that must have, you know, and and so you're reflecting upon it later and you're getting some insight. Is that the Holy Spirit? Is he, you know, giving us some some insight that right at the moment, and isn't that life, as we go through life, we'll go through an experience, and then later, as we reflect upon it, we're able to see a more comprehensive meaning behind it that wasn't there right at the beginning, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. I'm curious, did you guys, um, were you guys convinced by Oral's arguments in part one? Like, did you agree with her about the nature of the gods? No? I felt that Lewis was giving us contrasting personalities and that he was showing us that even in personalities that we feel we're very different from, that there might be aspects of that personality that we can identify with. And so Oral is one of those characters that I think she's very complex because while Holly was saying earlier, you know, she wore the veil because she bought into the fact that people said that she was physically ugly. Well, Mm -hmm. the fact that she was physically ugly really had nothing to do with her moral character because as far as I was concerned, she was one of the most noble characters throughout the whole book, you know, and the most unselfish character throughout the book. So, uh, So I think we can see in ourselves 
in the worst of people a little bit of ourselves and we can see in the best of people a little bit of ourselves and isn't that ironic but i think that's part of the human experience <laughs> <laughs> yeah well actually that's interesting because i agree with you that oral is one of the like morally best most admirable characters in the book despite her failings but and I would say the king is one of the worst. But there's multiple times in the book where Psyche or she herself sees the king in her. Like she's acting like the king in this moment. This is like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. I guess I'll just go into my perspective, how I interpreted the book. Obviously, this is just one interpretation. Um I guess a very brief way to put it is I saw Oral as the old man and Psyche as the new man. And the book was an allegory for the conflict within every Christian between our our old and new man. I think I see that. I think that works. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to throw out a few observations before I dive into that more. So Oral, she's ugly. She wears a veil. Um, and, and I wonder if that represents like the side of us that walks in shame for sin. Um, and the reason why Adam and Eve had to wear clothes after they sinned for the first time in the garden. Um, she lives in the world and suffers by the world, so kind of the side of us who's more concerned with earthly worries. Um, she discounts her own goodness, which I think is interesting, because I think, mm -hmm. you know, our, the old man tends to do that as well. Um, and, and so Psyche, her being the new creation, she's beautiful, she's perfect. Um, she lives in this invisible castle untouched by worldly worry or troubles. So, and I mean, ideally, that's how, you know, the new creation in us should act. Like, like Paul says, to rejoice in our suffering and, and to be filled with hope, not because we've already attained heaven, but because we know we will. So I thought that was interesting. And, and the book continually says Oral and Psyche are the same person. So that's how I drew that connection. Um, okay, so Oral feels estranged by God, which is the God of the mountain or the West Wind. I'm just going to refer to him as the God of the mountain and left alone to her suffering. The book is her case against the gods. Um, she feels rejected and also threatened by Psyche's love for the God of the mountain. Um, and... Yeah, hey, hang I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt you. I might should say this later, but that's another weird thing to me about the book because... Lewis is drawing, like, parallels between these gods and God, even though they're not God and they're not like God. But, like, they feel, to some extent, much more like what I would assume some ancient gods were, like mm -hmm. evil spirits or something, you know? Yeah. Like demons or whatever. So it's kind of weird that in some aspects it's like that, but in other aspects it's like, a prototype or representation of the true God. Yeah. It kind of, it, it's a kind of a jumble that doesn't mm -hmm. make sense to me quite. Yeah. Actually, real quick, I'm going to fish through this book and find this one quote because it describes the God of the mountains so perfectly. Okay, so this is um, Psyche replying to Oral, and Oral is trying to convince Psyche to disobey the God of the mountain who she's married to. And he comes in the night and 
basically that's their relationship as he comes in the night and she can't see him and she's not allowed to look at him. And so Oral's like, um, okay, that's really concerning. This is probably a monster. So you need to take this lamp and light it on fire and look at him and just see the monster you've been with because this is horrible and I can't believe this. And she forces her to do it by saying, I'm going to kill myself and then you if you don't do it or kill you and then myself if you don't do it, which is really extreme, by the way. I think it shows something about about um, Oral. Oral's likeness to the king. Imperfection of her love. Yeah. 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 So anyway, so this is Psyche replying to Oral, who refused previously to do it until Oral threatened both their lives. And um, uh, so, so, so Oral says, enough of your subtleties, says I. Both of us die here in plainest truth and blood unless you swear, swear to shine the lamp on him. And she says, if I do, said she hotly, it will not be for any doubt of my husband or his love. It will only be because I think better of him than of you. He cannot be cruel like you. I'll not believe it. He will know how I was tortured into my disobedience. He will forgive me. So I feel like based off of that quote, the God of the Mountain is very much like the loving nature of God that we think of. But interesting, interesting that like she needed forgiveness, right? Like from Oral's perspective, what she was asking Psyche to do for Psyche, Psyche was blameless, right? In doing it because it was a reasonable thing to do. But apparently it wasn't a reasonable thing to do. Don't you think that's odd? Well, no, because Oral and Psyche are the same person. So Oral is still responsible for the sin of Psyche in that way, if that makes sense. And also, I think this represents the fall of man when we ate from the tree of good and evil and we like insisted on fully knowing God. Remember how Satan was tempting Eve and saying like, like you, you won't know who God really is or something like that. Until you eat yeah. this, so, yeah. No, I thought he said you will be like God. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's different, but similar. That's interesting. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Um, okay, so I'm just going to keep reading. She feels rejected and threatened by Psyche's love for the god of the mountain in the same way it feels like rejection to our own suffering when the new man is tempted to rejoice in spite of and in the midst of daily struggle and lived horrors. So she's enraged by Psyche's for that she's forbidden to look upon him. And I put in parentheses, why would God show up? Why won't God show up and intercede instead of being distant and invisible? And she marvels at Psyche's audacity to have intimacy with him. And then again in parentheses, is not God a horror also? He who allows this one he claims to love stand in the rain in rags and lets her falsely believe she lives in a palace. That was a scene in the book. And, and that's a really good way to explain it, basically. Like, here Psyche is. She's so happy. She's absolutely convinced she has the best life possible. And all Oral can see is her sister standing in the rain. She's in rags, and she should be miserable by every yeah. logical thought. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, Oral is realistic and logical. Her anger makes sense. The only contradiction is how healthy and strong Psyche is when she should look sick and malnourished from surviving alone in the wilderness. Um, this peril is illustrated when they are standing side by side in the reflection of the pool at the end of the book, one clothed and the other naked. So Psyche looking upon her god with the lamp is man's need to know good from evil, blah, blah, blah. I explained that earlier. Um, another thing I thought was interesting, and I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if Ugin is a representation of like the dark side of our church. <laughs> 
like, and I think of the Church of England or or the Catholic Church back church back then when they were like torturing people and committing horrible atrocities that God would never approve of. <laughs> so right, and, and all it was all mixed up, like the truth with the mm-hmm. horrible like things people did, thinking it was for because like God actually does exist. Christianity is real, but these people who were the church on earth that's how they carried it out and it was like yeah that's interesting i never thought of that yeah doing horrible things in god's name okay um so to go further on that point a lot of people in the church are wrong about god Ingit represents god in the book as how a lot of people see him a literal stone cruel holy in parentheses and holy is constantly associated with darkness and horribleness um so he's holy to a shuddering degree, cold, detached, and merciless. The priest of Ungit, who destroyed the innocent and perfect uh, psyche, who represented Jesus. The sacrifice parallels the crucifixion. Um, and except that, except that then psyche becomes the figure of a Christian rather than Christ. Right. And, it, and I think it also represents the crucifixion all Christians go through, like we're crucified with Christ. Taking uh, up when our they Christ. die to okay. their old selves. Yeah, because, and you remember the night before her crucifixion, she was drawing away from Oral. That's how Oral saw it. She, she felt rejected by Psyche. And here Psyche is longing for her new life. And she's just ready for, the, like, basically salvation to come to her. And then, and that separates them in their relationship till the end when they're... Um, reconciled? Yes, reconciled. Thank you. <laughs> so, um... Okay, this also explains Psyche's longing for a golden palace when she was on the mountain. Um, and, and that's like how we long for heaven, even if we're not Christians and we don't believe in any of this, we constantly have a longing. Um, yeah, and of course C.S. Lewis would put that in because he's all about, you know, the search for joy, surprised yeah. by joy, and what you're actually longing for is something outside of this world. Yeah, what was his quote? If we desire something outside of this world, the only logical conclusion is we were made for another world or something like that. Yeah. Oh, oh, I don't know if I said this. The, so the priest ordering Psyche to be killed may have been like the Pharisees killing Jesus. Um, anyway, so Oral believes in Ungit because she cannot deny evil. And Psyche believes in the god of the mountain because she cannot deny good and real love. So... So that's it for my thoughts. I really like that. I, I never really thought of it in exactly that light in a lot of ways. And that makes some that makes some sense. Yeah, thanks. Mrs. Matthews, did you like the book this time around? This as much as you liked it before? Was it as hard to read this time? <laughs> it was more difficult this time. Okay. Yeah. It was more difficult this time. Um uh, and I'm not really sure why, you know, one of you made the comment that when you were younger, you just really liked the book, but you couldn't articulate why you liked it. And I think that's interesting because as we go through life and we um, witness things and we understand them, uh, we're not even really that aware of what's going on in our subconscious and why at sometimes things ring true to us and we like it and at another time we're confused by it and you have to wonder how much the Holy Spirit who resides in every believer uh, how operative he is in forming our 
uh, opinions and uh, we all love C.S. Lewis. There's no doubt that we all love C.S. Lewis and we love <laughs> his story. We love his story that he was such a uh, an intellectual and, and those of us that know about his mother dying when he was, you know, 10 and uh, what he and his brother Warney went through and how detached his father was and and uh, just the the uh, difficulty that that he had in his life but then it was his intellect and his desire to really know the truth that he couldn't turn his back on it and he said you know that the skid marks of him coming into the kingdom were a mile long he did not want to to admit that yes he'd been wrong for a, a big part of his life and so we just thank God for C.S. Lewis and so many other people that the Holy Spirit has used, whether they're writing fiction or nonfiction, um, or you know what their uh, medium of expression of the goodness and the greatness of God. And I'm into near-death experiences now, so I have a greater understanding uh, of God's perspective on things than what I had before. And I do realize that in our four-dimensional world in which we live, in this natural world, it's very short. When the scripture says that our life is like a vapor, it, it really is. When you get to be my age and you look back and you think, oh my gosh, I remember when that grandkid was born. I remember it vividly. You know, our lives are very, very short. And... Uh, God's caused us to be born in this time, in this place, in this country, so that we can um, help spread his love to people who need it so badly. You know, he loves every one of us, whether we're born in India, Africa, you know, Iran, America, he loves us all equally. And I've come to realize that loving God and having a personal relationship with him where you walk with him you know, and he's in all of your decisions because he's a part of my consciousness. He's a part of my awareness. That's just a small part of him, but he's he's there. And to thank him for loving his creatures so much that he wants to have fellowship with us, it, it just blows your brain. It just blows you away. <laughs> That's good. Uh, shall we move into our favorite quotes? Okay, I guess I'll go first. I literally only wrote down one because of the circumstances under which I read the book. I didn't like remember. I didn't pull out my phone and write it down really. Um and this is so random, guys. You guys probably going to have like deep spiritual quotes, but <laughs> but <laughs> I do think one of the things that makes this book actually like effective is that he can so aptly portray like how you just actually feel as a human being and then i don't know put the spiritual truth in that because it, you know it's not dry it's like this is how it actually is and i just thought this was like a really good description of this so i wrote it down anyway mm. long preface aside oral says i was like water put into a bottle and left in a cellar utterly motionless never to be drunk poured out spilled or shaken the days were endless. The very shadows seemed nailed to the ground as if the sun no longer moved. And um, that's how she felt in her grief and depression after Psyche was sacrificed. 
And I just thought that was like the most accurate description of that. I've like that, that captured it. Yeah. That's a good quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, grandma, we have quite a few. You want to go back and forth like popcorn? Okay. Okay. You, you want to start? <laughs> Not a few popcorn. <laughs> there were so many quotes in the book so this is just seven of them yeah you know? and <laughs> probably not even the seven best but uh the first two are by fox himself where he says everything is as good or bad as our opinion makes it now do i agree a hundred percent with what fox is saying there i don't agree a hundred percent but i do I do agree with 80% of what he's saying. He's right because perspective is everything, but he's also wrong because I don't how I don't care how positive of an attitude you have. You can't go through the Holocaust thinking it's a good thing. Like no matter how good your perspective is. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like reality is objective. You yeah. can control your response to reality, but reality still exists. Yeah, you yes. can't manipulate your brain into changing reality. Right. Yeah. Good, good thought. I love that. Yeah. Um, so this quote, For I was now old enough to know that a man can find comfort in words coming out of his own mouth. Hmm. Hmm. I thought that was true. Every once in a while, I'll like be in a bad mood and I'll be like, all right, Holly. And I'll just like, give myself a matter of fact speech. And it really is. Sometimes it does the trick. <laughs> Uh, I like the one that <clears throat> said the divine nature is without jealousy. Hmm. I don't think that's, I'm not sure that's true, though, is it? Like, it depends on what you mean by jealousy, I guess. But the Bible's always saying that God is jealous. That's right. Yeah. Simply meaning that he doesn't want to share, just like the first commandment says to love the Lord. You know, you shall have no other gods beside me. You could say that God was is very jealous to um to honor his own uh, sovereignty and that we as human beings, it's for our good that we realize that, yeah, he's not going to share that with anybody. And if you want to use the word jealousy, yeah, well, okay. I guess that's a part of, in a way, that's what it means by saying that the divine nature is without jealousy. Because weren't they saying, wasn't he saying that like, um, no, the gods aren't punishing Psyche because because people are thinking she's a goddess the vi- divine nature is without jealousy like the divine nature is divine and so it doesn't feel threatened by right. exactly. humans yeah. yeah 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 um but sweat <laughs> is the kindest creature of the three far better than philosophy as a cure for ill thoughts say that again <laughs> but sweat is the kindest creature of the three far better than philosophy as a cure for ill thoughts. Oh, okay. That sounds like a Lewis, doesn't it? Yeah. He's just saying, because remember he would say, if you're depressed, grab a broom and (laughs) sweep the floor. You know, very practical, very practical. (laughs) Uh, And there was another quote, it might be in accordance with nature that some hands can heal. That quote is in the book, and I totally believe that, that God gives gifts to some people, uh, you know, various kinds of gifts for their benefit and other people's benefits, yeah. Well, the Bible says as much. Um, uh, This is Fox talking to Oral. Daughter, I did badly last night. I think this offer to fight the prince yourself is foolish and, what's more, unseemly. But I was wrong to weep and beg and try to force you by your love. Love is not a thing to be so used. Mm. Yeah. That's a really good one. Mm -hmm. 
this sounds a little out there, but it's in the book and I believe it. It says, our real enemy was not a mortal. The room was full of spirits. Hmm. That's in the book. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? Ah, that's beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> that's where the top. Actually, so Lewis originally wanted to call this book Barefaced. But the publisher just didn't like it. It was like, ah, no, that's going to be a turnoff for everyone. So he convinced him to come up with a different title. (laughs) I didn't even remember that was in the book. That's great. I love that. Thanks. There's another quote that says, It's only sense, S-E-N-S-E, that one should die for many. It happens in every battle. That was probably Fox talking when he was talking to uh, Oral. Okay. Um, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Only words. Words to be led out to battle against other words. That's good. I like that. That's really good. I love how people, whenever you guys compliment my quotes, it's like, yes, I wrote that. (laughs) Go ahead. Um, I like the quote, are not all men of one blood? That was Fox when he was talking to Psyche. He Mm -hmm. said, are not all men of one blood? Yep, we are. We are. Was that your last quote? That was mine. No, no. My last quote is, the sweetest thing in all of my life has been the longing to reach the mountain to find the place where all the beauty comes from. That's a great quote to wrap up this episode on. I thought it was. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this was a very hard book to read. There's a lot of suffering in it, but if you can do it, I would say it's a great one to put on your wish list. (laughs) Especially if your mind really likes to, likes puzzles and likes to see below the surface and contemplate things, you know. it depends upon what mood we go to a book. Sometimes we don't want to work that hard intellectually or spiritually to try to, you know. But uh, So we, we read different things for different um, motives. Mm-hmm. But if you really want to challenge this as a book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like too many people have read this book and walked away completely confused for us not to put right. it in our podcast. So... I'm glad, even though we're all school confused, we were able to say some things. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, this is becoming a theme on the podcast. We're confused, but we're still going to ramble for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Join the group. <laughs> oh. Thank you so much, Mrs. Matthews, for joining us. Oh, my and... pleasure. No, thank you so much. And um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Join us in three weeks to hear about Atomic Habits by James Clear.